It's Bad Ink Jam, but not as we know it. Hello, cuz this is Big. Welcome to the Bashcast, brought to you by BookieBashing.net, betting at 100.1 and above. It is 19 minutes past 1pm on Friday the 12th of March 2021. And the schools have gone back. This is Bashcast number 167. We have a chat with former head of Greyhound Racing at Paddy Power, Anthony Kaminskis. We also have a look back at lockdown as it was. And the reduction in cards, corners and goals we saw in the European leagues. Hat-trick of winners on the PGA and European Tour. And applying the Game Centre to Smarkets to extract some value there. All of that and more coming up after some Floyd. So, 2021, let's kick it off. Everyone doing okay? It's been a while since we spoke. We spoke the day before Christmas Eve last. And not a lot has happened since then. Even though it's been how many months? Ten years? Don't know how long it's been since the day before Christmas Eve, but it feels like a long time. That period up till Christmas Eve, we were in Scotland. We were visiting the in-laws. We drove to Scotland on the same day that they announced that they were closing the borders and everyone was going into super mega lockdown just before, like five days before Christmas. We, we heard this news 10 miles from the border of Scotland. And two small kids in the back of the car, we live in Worcestershire, so we're like, now we're continuing over the border. Safest thing to do. Um, 
so we were up in Scotland, but had to come home on Christmas Day because the Nicola Sturgeon was making it illegal to cross the border on Christmas Day, uh, midnight Christmas Day, Boxing Day. So we couldn't come home on Boxing Day and we didn't want to be stuck in Scotland forever. As nice as it is, here's the shouty headmaster in the Pink Floyd track. It's, also, it's a bit weird, this ending, isn't it? Not that I think Pink Floyd would mind being called weird. Uh, there's excellent... I was reminded of that track or watched a lockdown thing on Netflix. Uh, Roger Waters uh, goes around European war memorials uh, and playing Pink Floyd songs at various locations to crowds. Uh, and I hadn't heard that song for a while. Regardless, we were up in Scotland. Um, we were betting on the darts, which had the weirdest PL uh, <coughs> ROI graph. It was shaped exactly like a V. It was all the way to the middle of the tournament, and then win, 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 all the way to the end of the tournament, and then finish the tournament marginally in profit. Not very much at all, just very slightly in profit. Um, which is kind of the other way around than it normally is in these darts and tennis and round-robin tournaments because you normally get uncertainty in the first round and the second round and those are the markets that are meant to be easier to beat um, uh, and then as we go progress in the tournament confidence and pricing up markets becomes uh, higher and easier and more certain and so it's, it's normally harder to win the latter, the later we get on in the tournament. But it was the other way around uh, in that darts PDC. Um, yeah, I just lost money hand over fist from the first round to the third round and then couldn't stop winning all the way up to the final to finish marginally up. Weird. So we were up in Scotland and then came down on Christmas Day, pretended to the kids that Christmas Eve was Christmas Day. Although I, I didn't mind Christmas Day. Seven hours in the car down the motorway watching Breaking Bad on the iPad. That'll do me for Christmas Day. And then on the 4th of January, we hear the news uh, that we're going into super mega lockdown and they're going to close the schools for the love of God. And so all parents of primary school children up and down the country sigh, <laughs> exhale with a sigh, because now that uh, steals all of our time from us. Uh, we have to be at home with small kids. They need homeschooling. But more importantly, as anyone knows, they need attention. You can't sit at a laptop and have a small child in the background uh, for months at a time. You can do it for five minutes and ten minutes. Um, and But you can't do it for any longer than that. And then the, that's a major issue when it comes to my betting, when it comes to the managing of the site, because you can accomplish the square root of zero in five to ten minutes. It takes about five to ten minutes for me to sort of get my thoughts together to figure out what it is that I'm, I've sat down at the computer to actually do. Um, so I suspended a few things. I suspended horse racing betting, um, which is frustrating because I've seen quite a few big winning lucky 15 tickets since um, the beginning of January. So um, there's definitely, there's not just FOMO, there's, what's the, FOMO is the fear of missing out. What's it? What is it when you actually missed out? AOMO. There's FOMO and AOMO going on because I know I've lost some money there. Um, I continued with the golf, which was wonderful. We'll come to that later. But what a start to 2021. Um, 
my probably the best start financially to a year ever, which considering I was hardly spending any time betting, um, works out very well for me. Um, I continued a bit of low-hanging fruit on the um, combinations bets, which um, we'll come to later as well, but essentially busted a balance on those um, uh, and need some re-evaluation. Uh, and other than that, uh, I couldn't do anything on the site. I couldn't do any research in R&D. And this is the thing that you miss when you're at home homeschooling. It's the freedom to be able to critically think goes out the window when you're doing fractions and phonics. Um, so it all had to be suspended. Uh, the 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 eat not just critically thinking for betting, but you know the diet and exercise regime. They shut all the gyms so we can no longer go and lift the barbell up. Um, and when you're getting snacks for a five year old and just spending all day watching um, Peppa Pig and BBC Bite Size, um, the mental preparation of dieting just seemed too much. So that I suspended that. Put on two and a half stone. Two and a half stone over Christmas, uh, January and February. Refused to weigh myself through all, all of that because I think I knew in the back of my head that it was going upwards, but I didn't think that much. Um, but at least that gives me a project for spring, right? So now we're on mega, mega non-lockdown fasting, uh, uh, 500 calories a day, seven days a week, plus a long run. I bought myself a Peloton to get myself in shape, although I didn't realize the length of time that that takes to come through. It arrives on the 11th of April, which is the day before the gyms reopen, and I'm not going to want to use it because I'm going to be at the gym anyway. Um, so 500 calories a day plus a long run. You need a calorie deficit of 7,700 calories to lose a kilogram. And I want to lose 12.5 kilograms, which means uh, if I can stick to this plan, which I will, because 500 calories is easy money. I'm more used to the zero calories a day fasting. So I'm going to do 500, which is, you know, some green salad for lunch and a fish for some vegetables for dinner and a glass of wine. I reckon 1st of June, 1st of June, unless there's no major hiccups um, for 12.5 kilograms, two and a half stone. Uh, that's the goal. I'll let you know on the 1st of June how I'm doing, but it should be relatively straightforward that. So um, the diet and, and the exercise went out the window for me and for everyone. Uh, the kids were at home. It was just general. I don't know. Like, I didn't find it easy, which is a really weird thing because... We're comfortable. We're not in the hospitals working, surrounded by the risk of COVID. Um, we're, you know, I made enough money on the golf in the first three weeks uh, of the year that I didn't really need to worry too much about how much we're bringing in for the rest of the year. Um, so it's weird that it felt uncomfortable, but it just did. And I think it's that part where you're not training, you're not eating well enough, and you're not critically thinking. So I hope you survived. I hope you got through it. It's positive foot forward now. Um, we'll start the year on the 10th of March or whatever the day is today, the 11th of March. Um, uh, we'll start, so we're going to restart up all of the, the where are the edges, where are the angles projects. Um, uh, get a little bit more content onto the site. Thank you for a few people who are like shop only guys who emailed in. And they said that they were going to keep on retaining their subscription through lockdown, even though they've no use for us because they're presumably restricted online, which is really good. Things like that really genuinely make a difference. Just thank you very much for that uh, generosity 
you were involved with that. We did have a very odd thing through um, lockdown with the site that, you know, we didn't have very many um, resources available to us because all three of us have got kids who aren't at school. And we were noticing the site started being um, difficult to access. Um, there'd be horse racing at one o'clock and maybe uh, 10 minutes to one or half past 12, you can't access the site uh, or it's extremely slow. Um, if there's horse racing at 12.20, it would become extremely slow at 12 o'clock. Uh, kickoff at 6 p.m., 5 p.m. team news, it becomes seriously slow to the point that people, including myself, can't even get on it. Uh, 8 p.m. kickoffs, it's getting seriously slow at about 7 p.m., 10 minutes to 7, uh, and people, including me, can't get on it. And this was happening day after day after day, and it was perplexing, especially because of the times that it was happening seemed to be timed with when you wanted to go on and either I wanted to add whatever I could at the time or people wanted to see whatever they could at the time. Um, and then after a bit of investigation, it was determined that we were getting DDoS attacks. Oh, so thanks very much for them. Um, the, the, the biggest issue with them was the lack of um, resource availability to deal with them because, you know, we didn't really have that much time to be able to sit and fix the issue. But fix the issue we had to do. So for anyone that doesn't know, and I'm included in this group of people, so this is going to be a really clumsy sort of re-understanding of um, the technicality behind a DDoS attack. And if I get anything wrong in um, the next minute or so, um, keep your pedantry to yourself, Dr. Pedant. It really isn't important how, how accurate this definition is. A DDoS attack is where somebody overloads a server or a website by sending it um, packages of information or requests from multiple locations at the same time, but, with the, but like dozens or hundreds or thousands of locations at the same time. So... The site or the server cannot tell that these are not, these are malicious requests. It thinks that these are, it can't tell the difference between a malicious request and a normal user. And so it tries to deal with each malicious request. Oh, you want some information? Here you go. Oh, you want some information? Oh, no, wait a minute. The queue's getting quite long back there. And uh, it gets so overloaded with information, it either grinds to a sluggish, slow crawl or just completely come, falls over because I can't deal with it. Um, and so that was what was happening and it was happening purposefully at times of the day when big sporting events were going on. It was happening one day and then the next day and then the next day and then the next day. Um, so who is deliberately sending a DDoS attack? Well, you probably never know. Uh, it's impossible to figure out. Um, people that enjoy disruption, sort of, you know, you know, there are vandals out there that like spraying graffiti on the wall. There are people, there are trolls on the internet that like seeing people get upset. And there are people that like uh, undertaking DDoS attacks and seeing sites go down. So the site going down, that means that the people who have paid for the access to the information can't get that information. And um, we had to go and put some defenses in place. And uh, the net result of putting these defenses in place means that we're no longer at risk. You know, you could fire these DDoS attacks at us and it won't uh, have any, any effect. Um, however, 
we need to be a little bit more protective over uh, people who are accessing the site. Perhaps if you have uh, a couple of different, legitimately uh, have a couple of different devices, who doesn't? I mean, I access the site from my phone and my iPad and the laptop and the Mac. If you've got a couple of different devices connected at the same time, or maybe even just a few tabs open with one tracker over here and one tracker over here and a calculator over here, it may think that too much information is coming from the same place at the same time and restrict one of those. That's really, that sucks. It's like people who are who are genuinely using it for uh, a, a valid reason and are allowed to are now restricted in their ability to um, access it in the way that they want to. Uh, and I'm not a f massive fan that that's the net outcome of what has resulted from this, but it was necessary to take action. There are just people in this world that enjoy seeing disruption and negativity with other people um, because they don't have enough uh, fucks to give about real things in their own life. Uh, so you just got to feel sorry for these people. At the end of the day, you can't, you can't, I'm, I'm not going to waste energy being mad at them. They don't deserve it. Um, you just feel so I've got sympathy for them um, and I hope that they figure out something better to do in the long run so that was our lockdown fortunately the schools have gone back this week in March and the freedom that I felt the freedom to think uh, the week before Cheltenham is fantastic obviously having been tried to move house for 18 months uh, the house is going through um, finally on the second day of Cheltenham so uh, that's going to disrupt my Cheltenham betting a little bit next week in attention. Um, but um, I'm now looking forward to uh, the rest of the year's football. The Euro 21's coming up this summer. Uh, and um, especially really just getting, I, I think majorly my plans are going to be to start upscaling um, the multiples on horse racing that have proved to be uh, so uh, financially rewarding for me towards the end of last year and essentially just getting back on the horse. So yeah, um, it's good to be back. It's good for the bash gas to be back. It's good to be talking again. <laughs> And now, the classified football scores for the week uh, starting the 4th of March. Uh, Fulham 0, Tottenham 1. West Brom 0, Everton 1. Liverpool 0, Chelsea 1. Over in Spain, Levante 1, Atletico Bilbao 1. The following day, Friday the 5th of March. In the Championship, as there was no Premiership game. Huddersfield nil, Cardiff nil, in the Bundesliga Schalke nil, Mainz nil. Let's move on to the following day, Saturday the 6th of March. Burnley 1, Arsenal 1, Sheffield United nil, Southampton 2, Aston Villa nil, Wolves nil, Brighton 1, Leicester, two. That's right, over 2.5 hits in the 88th minute of the uh, final match, thanks to a Leicester goal from Amati, and thereby ruining my big under 2.5 lucky 15 in the Premiership that day. 
over some key games in the Bundesliga that day. Borussia Mönchengladbach, nil, Bayer Leverkusen, one. Eintracht Frankfurt, one. Stuttgart, one. In Syria, A, Spezia, one. Benevento, one. Udinese, two. Sassuolo, nil. And over in La Liga, Cadiz, one. Ibar, nil. Osasuna nil, Barcelona two, and up in Scotland, Aberdeen nil, Hamilton nil, St Johnston one, Hibernian nil. Let's have a look at Sunday. West Brom nil, Newcastle nil, Liverpool nil, Fulham one, Man City nil, Man United two, and finally some action. Tottenham four, Crystal Palace one. Um, up in Scotland, there was one Premiership game on Sunday. It finished Dundee United nil, Celtic nil. Finally, over to Monday, we had uh, the Premier League in England: Chelsea two, Everton nil, West Ham two, Leeds nil. In Syria, ah, Inter one, Atalanta nil. Uh, what is going on? Uh, it has been quite an extraordinary period of low-action games. Um, so much so that we had to look at this. So how, how are we determining what is low-action? I did an analysis, and Duncan did a separate analysis. Uh, Duncan just looked at the English Premier League. I looked at six leagues across Europe. So let's t pick up Duncan's. One, two, three, four, five, six. In the last six years since the 2015-16 season, the average goals has hovered around 2.76, at a high of about 2.82 in 2018-19. The lowest period is joint 2017-18 and 2020-21, with 2.68 goals in each match. Uh, bizarrely, back in the 2016-17 season, uh, it was weighted home goals to away goals, 1.6 to home, 1.2 to away. Um, sorry, 1.53 to home, 1.15 away. So a really big home bias there. Uh, in 2020-21, 1.35 goals for the home team and 1.34 goals for the away team. So on average, we're now getting uh, that... A serious um, loss of home advantage, a lot more draws, a lot more away wins, a lot more imbalances. Um, looking at corners, because there are three action stats in each game, goals, corners and cards. Uh, since 2015, we've been hovering around about 10.5 corners per game in the Premiership. The lowest being 2018-19, which was 10.26, until this season, and we're down at 10.11. And similarly, cards. Uh, cards have been hovering around about 3.55 cards in a match. Uh, the lowest being 2017-18 until 2020-21, where we've got 3.1 cards in a match. And again, um, the difference between home and away corners and home and away cards is much more evened up in 2020-2021 than it has been in previous seasons. 
Um, the average reduction in goals in the for home teams has been an 89% reduction during uh, 2020-2021. For uh, corners, we've had a 96.2% reduction. For cards, we've had a 91.45% reduction. That was Duncan's analysis. I had a look at uh, six big leagues. So that's uh, Liga, League One in France, Bundesliga, La Liga, Serie A, the EPL and the Championship. And so the top two in England and the top four from Europe. And I did, instead of um, just averages over the season, I did 100-day rolling averages because, you know, things can, things can change over 100 days. And what you see for goals is the same uh, as Duncan. We're not just uh, below the average. We're below than we ever have been or we're lower than we ever have been since all the way back I started my analyses in 2016. So right now, we're seeing less goals than we've seen since 2016 in those top five leagues. Uh, what about corners? It's not just low. It's the lowest that we've ever seen, the 100-day average, um, since 2016. And what about cards? Yes, you guessed it. It's the lowest that we've ever seen since 2016. And all three graphs show that we dive off a cliff uh, through 2020. Um, cards especially dived off a cliff through uh, the beginning of 2020. Then there was an increase through the beginning of the season, actually, where things were looking like it was getting back to normal, and then... Which kind of tied in that I was doing a load of lucky 15s on um, penalties in games. I was making quite... I was doing well, I'm not going to lie. I was doing really decently on lucky 15s in penalties in Premiership matches and La Liga and League One. And then some point in December, it really feels like, without communicating it, there was a change internally within the Football Association. And they started telling referees were awarding too many penalties, which they probably were. I mean, they were an all-time high. Um, and there started being a reduction in the number of penalties awarded in each game. Um, but however... There was no communication of a change of rules from the FA. We just saw it empirically when we looked at how many penalties were in a game. There was a huge amount at the beginning of the season, uh, October, November, the beginning of December, and then it just stopped with no word. It was really weird. It's like we know something happened, but they didn't communicate anything. And at the same time, we saw a huge reduction in cards in December. I mean, absolutely massive reduction in cards from December. Um until now, um, the lowest reduction that I have in my data set. Cards is the most marked difference of what's changed um, this season, and especially since December. So what's going on? Well, you have to assume that it is crowd influence, influencing the action on the pitch. I can't give you a particular reason why goals and corners, which do have some relationship. If you look at the um, five-year graphs for, cord for corners and goals, every time goals goes up, corners tends to as well. You have a period where goals goes down, corners do as well. So there's some relationship between probably the uh, action areas of the pitch that the ball is in. When we have more goals, we have more corners. When we have less goals, we have less corners. And we have less of both of them. Why would that be? 
when there are no crowds, I don't have a reasonable explanation to that. You would think that the players were talented enough to perform, um, to get, you know, goals in the corners without the crowds. But there you go. Cards, you can have, certainly have the argument of two things. One, um, crowd influence on the referee. I think definitely uh, we can see that there has been an impact in there. But two, I think something structurally changed within the direction to the referees, uh, certainly at the, um, in December. Um, something's changed and they're just issuing, not just in the FA, across Europe, and they're just issuing fewer cards. Um, I'd raised my paddy power, and I'm not the only one, um, had raised our paddy power balances to the high four figures betting X plus goals, X plus cards, X plus corners in a game up to November, December. Um, and then after December, it just went dry. It didn't just go dry. It was just insanely dry. Uh, and um, I busted my paddy account, as did my mate. Um, what happened? Well, there were the sequence of four plus goals, six plus cards and nine plus corners which is the full payout of all of the different permutations of those bets at paddy power what's odds paddies didn't actually hit again until a single game i think a juventus game in late january in fact those bets performed so poorly um at paddy power there were over 1500 bets were you to multiply the back odds by four to undeniably making them enormous EV, level staking those 1,500 bets to win 200 pounds, you'd still be 10 grand down. And even Kelly staking, well, you'd be outrageously down because you're getting 200, 300, 400% EV, so you're staking massively on that. So well, how can we possibly um, be down that much betting odds that are 200 300 400 500% EV and the answer is cuz they all lost every single one of them lost the what all of these what's odd paddies and everything like that uh rely really on cards happening and corners happening and goals happening which is the most frustrating thing being that I was communicating on how well I was doing them on them in the last bashcast and then there's a massive break uh, and during that break they just all lost and I busted my balance um, we unveiled an automated combinations bet scraper because I was manually going through every single game, multi, you know, 20 games a day, and I was putting them on the track, and I was doing it in the hour up to kickoff. It was incredibly manually labor-intensive for me, and we sort of realized that, especially if anything happened with a lockdown with schools closing, my availability turned to nil, couldn't put up any complex bets on the site, couldn't even review what was going on. Um, so we put up an automated system to do it. Uh, so we sh had a shift in direction from a manual importing onto the site to an automatic importing onto the site. And uh, we timed that exactly at the same time with a massive reduction in action periods. So uh, we have seen that um, at level staking anyway, um, return, I've got the actual figures here, to tell you the truth, uh, return n negative ROI all the way up to about 110% EV bets. Uh, that's at level staking, the combinations bets.
If we were Kelly staking, and I have never been a huge proponent of Kelly staking in the past, and I've actually argued why I didn't think it was a good idea. And do you know what? I'm starting to see a lot of evidence that I'm going to have to put my hands up and say I was wrong. I used to do an, a, a version, a simplified version of Kelly staking, where um, I would just bet more on higher EV. I would like uh, double my stake at higher EV, which I guess is a version of it, um, but I never really used a calculator. I just did it all mentally. You know, if I was betting to win uh, 300 quid on a bet uh, normally and I liked it, it would be 600. If I really liked it, it would be to win 1,000 kind of thing. So uh, level staking over 105%, um, over 104% was still returning a negative ROI and over 105% was positive. Uh, Kelly staking and it shouldn't really be like that it should be if we're betting always over 100% uh, EV uh, we're returning a profit and the reason being you can't return a profit if all the bets are losing when's it going to end well it hasn't ended yet um, so we I want now that I'm sort of back working a sort of review of how what what we're doing through this combination bets because there's going to be a couple of things going on are we getting some implicit uh, assumptions wrong uh, and we ran hot last year when we made a decent amount of money on them. And I ran my balance up to the high four figures. Uh, or um, is there something fundamentally wrong with some of the coefficients that go into the action periods? When you have um, corners, you have less action periods to get goals. So there's a coefficient that has to be added then. And did we just run hot last year? It's difficult to actually know when there's been such a fundamental shift in... Um, the number of goals, corners, uh, and um, cards in the game. So it's a sort of, we've got to step back and break it up by composition and look at it a lot more in detail. What has happened, I think, is it's got a little bit um, um, dry towards the end of lockdown. We've had fewer bets going up. Um, uh, and um, it's time now to do a proper analysis on then. Um, we, what we do know is that there is plenty of value out there. Just having an automated system that wasn't able to be reactionary and change with the times um, probably counted against us a little bit. But this is why we don't put, you know, all of our eggs into one bankroll. Um, if combination bets were doing well, maybe golf's doing badly, horses are not doing too well. Then the horse is starting doing well um, and I've got another portfolio over here and then at least I know I'm balancing things out so that when something does hit a losing run, um, I can I can be protected against sort of major damage against my bankroll. I was extremely fortunate actually that for the combination bets because I didn't have time to look at them because I'm um, um, looking after the kids, and I could really only just get on a few. The worst that happened to me was that I lost the money that I won. Um, and I have a lot of sympathy for anyone that started after the last bash cast when I was really pushing how well I was doing on them. Wouldn't be too surprised if a lot of people never touched them ever again. Um, uh, this losing run definitely is a one of the harder ones we've been on. Um, there's two things. There's the action periods um, are lower, and the also, not as many winners are winning. And we, there's always a thing that um, when there are more draws and there are more underdogs winning than the general profit seems to um, seems to slow down. And then we always pull out of it uh, one way or another. I'm wondering if it's going to be when 
crowds come back? Because if it is, that's going to make a very long period in 2021 when we have to wait for that. Um, and if it is going to have to be that, and that should be when? September, next season, August or something like that, there's possibly going to have to be um, an element of looking at, um, okay, if we can't bet on action to happen, um, we've really got to start thinking, are we going to be betting on unders now? I, I have been betting a few lucky 15, lucky 31 unders and doing quite well. Um, just as an easy one on a Saturday morning because they're quite quick. You just go straight into the league that you, you're picking and ask it to present the goals. You go under, 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 throw it into your lucky 31, your lucky 15, as long as you think that the bookmakers' adjusted prices haven't adjusted enough to these uh, extraordinary conditions that we're under. Um, but certainly, you know, a little bit more detail required um, due to the changing conditions we find ourselves in in lockdown 2021. Right, you know, I was going to move on to a golf segment and then even a big exchange trading segment, but wow, look, we're 40 minutes already in and I didn't want to make this um, an exceptionally long hour and a half, two hour episode back. So what we'll do is we'll split it into two. We'll do this one this week. We'll do another one next week. We'll be cover the golf and the exchange in a little bit more detail. Just cliff notes on the golf. Um, three winners in three weeks to start off 2021 is always my favorite way to start the year because, you know, every as everybody knows, on the 1st of January, your profit's nil. It's zero. You go on a short losing run at the beginning of the year. It doesn't matter how much you won in December. You're in a losing year. Uh, Kevin Nahr, Harris English... Uh, and then Tyrell, you can leave your hat on, who um, I got that pun in about six weeks too early, uh, so I can't use it again. Uh, um, so uh, really amazing start to the end. And then a lot of weeks afterwards, loads of places, loads of break-even weeks, um, which is absolutely fine in the golf. Um, loads of decent weeks just from places. Very few losing weeks. It's just been a fantastic start. Um Golf is seeing me through in terms of personal betting profits. Did a little bit of analysis on historical um, results. The reason behind this analysis is it was brought to my attention by, not by me, by someone else, but it was brought to my attention that the big tipsters out there, if they tip somebody, they may be negative EV on our tracker before they've tipped them and then big EV on the tracker after they've tipped them. And this makes sense because this is the same concept as the coupons tracker. When smart money's coming in and people are betting on informed decisions, exchange prices come down and therefore EV on the tracker increases by that reduction um, uh, on the exchanges, even if bookies are cutting them. I mean, it's, it, it, we have to be looking at on average in the long run, not individual people. Um, so on average, in the long run, what we're seeing is the concept of smart money translating into plus EV golfers on the tracker, football teams on the coupon tracker. So the theory, therefore, is that, well, are the guys on the tracker just plus EV to bet at bookmakers or could they be plus EV to bet um, at the exchanges as well? Now, we don't have enough data, even with two years of data, to prove it one way or another. We've got about 1,050 tipped golfers that we've put up on the Tuesday or the Wednesday before the tournament. 
But were we just to bet them win only, we would have had 119% ROI. Why would we have had 119% ROI? One, uh, the smart money is coming in. And even though these prices have moved slightly on the exchange, um, they haven't moved enough and they're still plus EV uh, at the time of recording the prices on the track and on the exchange. Two, we ran hot over 1,100 bets. I mean, both either could be true, neither could be true, and both could be true. But it's just some empirical stats that are out there. I've started backing a few golfers on the exchange anyway. Get the inflated price on them there. Uh, and a third application, if if under the theory that we're seeing, you know, tipped golfers rise in EV, so you're seeing decent golfers uh, at the top, like value golfers at the top of the EV chart, on the assumption that DraftKings, who are a uh, fantasy sports model over in America for American, UK and international players, pick six golfers in a tournament, um, uh, you've got a salary cap. Now, assuming that they're pricing them up similarly to the Vegas markets, which will be similar to the exchange markets and the European markets in the, in, that we have access to, assuming that they're similar to those, there should be some congruity between players that are plus EV on the tracker uh, because of smart money coming in for them and the prices available on DraftKings. And therefore... I'm running with a working theory that the tracker, because it's highlighting smart money, clever people's money to determine plus EV golfers, could be really well suited to drafting lineups in golf and DraftKings. So we've been giving that a go, uh, we being me and Duncan, last few months. And um, we're doing very well. I'll report back on exactly how in another episode but for now that's enough for the first half you are listening to the bashcast and it's brought to you by bookiebashing.net
welcome back to the Bashcast. That was No Judgment, the extended mix by Frankie Rosado and Joe Goddard from the album No Judgment, released 2021, six days ago. Uh, So uh, this week on the Bashcast, we are joined by Anthony Kaminskis. Anthony, hello. Hey, how's it going? How are you, Tom? I'm very good. Thank you very much. Thanks for asking. We're out of lockdown, which is important because I found that a little bit, I don't know, I found i found it difficult. What about you? Uh, well, Tom, I am in Ireland, so I'm, I'm thoroughly locked down still at the moment, I'm afraid. Um, you're making me very jealous. Okay. Uh, just off, off, the, off the hop there. Um, yeah, we're still locked down until definitely until middle of April anyway, so there's, we've got a good way to go, sadly. Do you Sorry. have any kids? Two now. Uh, yeah, so I've got a little lad who's, who's his second birthday will be in the summer, and then uh, most recent addition was the middle of January. So, oh wow! So yeah. what? Three months? Two yeah, months. two months. Yeah, yeah. So not much sleep is being had, but um, all good, all good fun, all good fun. Good God! Well, that's <laughs> fantastic news, but also may God have mercy on your soul throughout the rest of this year. Indeed. So um, I have two kids, one two-year-old and one five-year-old, and the five-year-old's at school, and it was the, I define lockdown as the schools are open or the schools are closed. Yeah. <laughs> so this week the schools opened up again, and all of a sudden I've got freedom to think and everything. Like totally that. agree. My, my, my eldest is in crash, and uh, if, that, mm. if that crash wasn't open, I would imagine I'd be struggling a lot more than I am now. So, <laughs> yeah, all good. So um, if we start off with some context, because um, you could be Eddie Joe uh, off the street. Um, so um, give us a little bit of your background, um, wh- where you've come from and where you are just now so that, you know, we know why we're listening to you. Yeah, just um, Anthony Kaminskis just um, got involved in gambling just basically as I turned 18. Um Worked for Betfred at Betfred's head office for a little while. Ten years at Paddy Power in the trading room. Paddy Power Betfred it became in the end. Um, and yes, just since March 2018, handed in my notice in March 2018. Basically just because I was making more money gambling than I was working. And um, and then I wanted to expand the gambling side of things and because it was just something I wanted to do and it was more more enjoyable than the work I was doing. So um, yeah. Um, full time, full time gambler, and trying to trying to earn that way. So and at, and at Paddy Power, were you you were the what position did you have there? So I started off my official title originally would have been junior horse racing risk management risk manager, and that was when there was about twenty lads in the horse racing team. Um, Paddy Power was oh, Paddy Power did really well early on, just because they they cottoned onto mobile betting about six twelve months before everyone else. And that 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 basically gave them the lift from being a relatively small bookmaker to really challenging, just having that head start on some of the uh, the older, the older more traditional bookmakers. Your Labrooks, your Corals, your Hills, Powers were um, they had a lot of smart people there uh, back in the day, and cottoned onto the mobile quickly. And I basically joined two thousand and eight as basically as the company was expanding at a rapid rate and it was a uh, it was really fun and enjoyable for the first half of it in particular um so we've got sort of similar uh backgrounds in that both of us uh joined sort of a corporate world in the mid 2000s and then the 2010s both of us 
sort of quit the corporate world to go and make, you have to make that decision. You know, I'm making more money now than I am at work, but will I continue making more money in the future than I would be if I sat in my career? That's the sort of the the, the risky trade-off that we're trying to work out, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I, I totally understand it's not for everyone as well. And I think, uh, I think you can, I think you can hear on people that end up staying in that world and just taking the wage at the end of every month and just getting by, but you can, you can understand it from both point of views as well. For me, it just got to a stage that, like, it's not that money wasn't becoming an option because money, money. I think of, I still think about money all the time. To be honest with you, not in a not in a greedy way, but just just making sure I'm safe, sort of thing. Um, and yeah, it was just a case of I was I was really working. I was I was probably working fifty hours for Paddy Power, Betfair, and then. I was probably doing that plus some on the side as well. So I was doing over 100 hour weeks. I really was. So this is a part that I'm very interested in. I wanted to go and ask you in a little bit of detail. You joined Paddy Power 2008. The the offices, I presume, were in Ireland. Were they in Dublin? Yeah, they were in an area called Tala in Dublin. Um, And then they moved to a more salubrious area in about 2013, Klonski, which is near the city centre. And what was the uh, corporate culture and corporate lifestyle like at that time? Things changed across many companies through the mid-2000s where people were smoking in offices and getting drunk all the time at the beginning, and they definitely weren't at the end. What, yeah. But you said, you know, they were making you, they were expecting you to work really long hours and things. What was it like in 2008 yeah. at Paddy Power? Paddy Power, to be honest with you, I, I'm very, very lucky that I landed at Paddy Power in 2008 just because, like I said, the company was expanding. There was a lot of smart people. I was one of, you'd, you'd, I was one of the least smart people when I got there, you'd have to say. Um, and I just being around people that were smarter than you and that were that were doing things that you hadn't seen before because you're just at university and you're a bit naive. And to be honest with you, them, them first five years where I look up, back on them with uh, great fondness, to be honest with you. Um, just from a look point of view of being there and then just what I learned and just, just being around smart people in a growing company, it was brilliant. And it was less corporate, like you said. There was no goals meetings at the end of the month and you didn't have to catch up with your manager every two weeks and write a load of crap down on a piece of paper and try and stick to it. And like, like it, the way it became at the end, just with Paddy Pear Betfair, you got very, very corporate. And I can, you can understand that as well. Like you can understand that, a company that's worth billions is going to have to behave slightly differently than a company that's on the up worth tens to hundreds of millions sort of thing. Um, and it just became, you you got all the people like Paddy Power and Bedford basically became a lot of people that didn't know a lot about gambling. And that's not the way I wanted to go. There was a lot of people that knew a lot about different areas, but the, the intricacies of the gambling, um, I just felt like they've kind of lost it a little bit and, like they've gone their own way and like they're worth whatever they're worth now, $40 billion or whatever. And it's like, they've obviously made the right decision, but just for me, it wasn't the right decision just to carry on down that path because I just wasn't interested in it at the end. And you, I mean, you, you can definitely tell that mistakes are being made um, in terms of the long-term viability of a lot of the products that the bookmakers are, are offering just now. Um, what happened to all those smart people? Are they still there um, or did they all, flee the sinking ship when the merge came in with Betfair. Yeah. Um yeah. Just I think some left. Some left that went and did different things. I've got a lot of friends that have gone on to different things, different analytical type roles with different companies, totally outside the industry as well. Not a lot of people like when you're in Dublin and if you want to stay in Ireland, there's not 
like there's there's not many options for bookmakers. When when Betfair Sportsbook opened, that created a, a rival to the Paddy Power brand in Ireland. Whereas Boyle Sports head office kind of wasn't really a rival. Paddy Power would have always I would have always felt Paddy Power was superior to Boyle Sports in in pretty much every regard. When the Betfair Sportsbook came to Dublin, they hired a, a couple of ex Paddy Power senior people, and they kind of like Brian Cochran would have been would have been the man in charge there, and he would have got a couple of people from Paddy Power that he knew. And so when the when the Sportsbook brand was set up, and there was like a there was a there was a bit of a rivalry for a, for eighteen months of talent that you, you, your wage could suddenly increase by getting an offer from Betfair, sort of thing, um, and. Yeah, and like that was just it was just interesting to yeah, just basically to see like um, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. There. I'm, I'm 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 waffling on them. No, uh, don't worry. I'm interested in the the comparison with Boyle Sports as well. Um, with yeah, but back in the mid two thousands, would Paddy and Boyles have been similar sizes, or was Paddy always a little bit bigger? Yeah, Paddy was always bigger. Just Boyle Sports was obviously owned by John Boyle. I think it's still in the family's hands, so it's always been. It's always been the Betfred to the as to the to the William Hill to the to the Betfred to the Labrook sort of thing. It's always been mm-hmm. the smaller independent cousin, basically. Um, so yeah, like there was never from a trading point of view, you always felt that they were like half trying to copy what you were doing, and like there was no if you if you ended up having to leave Paddy Power you, for whatever reason, you either rocked up at Boyle Sports or left the industry, sort of thing. So like it was always it was where you went. When you were when you weren't at Paddy Power any longer, that's the way it was back in the day. It might have changed then. Yeah, yeah. From my from my personal experience, I always felt that Paddy were a little bit bigger, but Boyles would always lay a little bit of a bigger bet, or would sort of let let you bet for a little bit longer before shutting you down. Which um, yeah, I think um, we've all got we've all got different experiences of that, haven't we? Like um, I think Boyle Sports have. They're particularly bad for a lot of stuff I do. I I can't get any sort of bet on them, but my strategy is probably slightly different to maybe what you're doing as well. So they might tolerate. So talking about your strategies, um, you 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 rose up um to the to lead the greyhound racing team at Paddy. Is that right? Yeah, there was a a guy that I was pretty close to at the time called Stephen Gray. Would have been would have been the Paddy Power guy for greyhounds for the first five years of me being there, say mm-hmm. and. We, we got on pretty well because basically he was one of the few English people in the company and I was obviously English and um like there was a little bit of a camaraderie between the, the couple of English people there at the time whereas I think now it's probably wouldn't be far off being 50-50 English Irish I'd say maybe yeah. not that but like it's uh it just shows you the way that the the, the nationalities have changed as the company's grown um, but yeah, like there was a there was a small cohort of English people. Stephen would have been one of them. I knew nothing about greyhounds. I was brought up very close to greyhound uh, to Bellevue Dog Track in Manchester, only say five ten miles away. Um, so I was aware of the dog track, but knew nothing about it. And just as I was learning about the mathematics of the background of gambling and different things, and speaking to Stephen, I kind of fell into the dogs a little bit that way. And when did Steve you ever bought, go to Bellevue as a mug punter, or did you? Oh, definitely, it? yeah. Uni, Jesus, I remember. I remember six of us having put putting a fiver into a pot and having thirty quid on a dog at five to one. The last race at Bellevue, it must have been a Friday night meeting, and it winning. And we went into town, but six of us with one hundred and eighty quid, and it was like, it was like, it was like unbelievable stuff. Like it was, some of the lads at uni still remember that because they don't really bet much, but um. 
like yeah I, I, have a, I have a very vivid memory of being at Bellevue and being a mug punter and I owned a couple of dogs there with Stephen's mother-in-law back in the day she was a trainer at Bellevue June McCoom so I would have had a few dogs with her as well as I as I was as my bank balance was growing basically so did you do well on the dogs as a mug punter oh no Jesus no definitely lost definitely lost like everyone else when you're learning and there's a there's an apprenticeship to be paid, isn't there? Like you, yeah, you, yeah. You, you don't you you, just, you tend not to you tend not to start winning straight away. You know? Well, I, I paid a cost for that because I remember we had I went to Birmingham University. We had Perry Bar dogs, um, oh, yeah. and in Birmingham, and I, I would go with the boys, but I would go and I wouldn't understand it, and because I didn't understand it, I wouldn't bet on it. I would have a beer. Um, but I, I wouldn't. Put, I wouldn't even put a pound down if I didn't understand um, what I was betting on, or how I was going to get an edge on it, or win. And it, it, a good point you make there is, I think I cost myself in the long run because I wasn't invested in it, and I didn't get any education or learning in yeah. greyhounds. And it's something I've never touched in my life because I, I sort of don't understand um, how I'm meant to get an edge or an angle or anything like yeah. that. Um, and um, I learned that lesson very early. You've got to invest. You've got to be invested and start losing money before you can dream of winning, don't you? Yeah, it's like kind of like the old Del Boy saying, isn't it? Like, um, you know, you've got, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to speculate to accumulate, sort of thing. And I think there's definitely a, there's definitely a trial and error process with all things betting as well. And yeah, and the the trial and the error are, are definitely very important to to working out how to win in in the long term. So um, do you currently have greyhounds on your radar just now? Are you betting on them on a daily basis with some of the tricks that you've learned inside the industry? Not at all, to be honest with you. No, it's, it's quite a hard sport to scale. Like I'm trying to scale a lot of the stuff that I do as big as as big as big I possibly can. And greyhounds is just, uh, it's just very, very difficult to scale. There's not really any appetite for laying anyone. There's not really any appetite for laying even break-even customers in greyhound racing, so... It's, uh, so is that a combination when you say you can't scale it? Is that due to um, getting restricted very quickly or uh, you can't get high enough stakes on or a combination? Yeah, combination of both those things. Yeah, you, you, you get your account would be very quickly restricted if you're betting any kind of mover on Greyhound Racing. So, yeah, it's just not something that I, I don't even follow it, to be honest with you. Like I've obviously spent the last, spent 2013 to 2018 knowing pretty much everything day to day about what was going on in Greyhound Racing. And I'd say the last two years, like I couldn't even tell you who was favourite for the Grand Derby in the summer. No idea. Just not following it. Not following it. I, I can I can go like that. I can I can bounce around sport to sport and find my edges and totally from knowing everything about something within twelve months, knowing very little about something, and my greyhound knowledge would be very very poor at the moment, and it's just not something I'm focused on. Yeah. Did you did you ever find it entertaining as a sport? Did you enjoy? Or was it all? It's all about the money, really. Greyhound racing, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, like I find it fascinating to be honest with you. Like as 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 a as a creature, as an animal, like greyhounds and horses, just just watching them move majestically with the four legs, and I, like I think it's just fascinating. Like you might not like greyhounds, you might not even like the concept of greyhound racing, but if you actually go and stand on the rail at what would have been Velvue or any other track, and you watch a greyhound run past you at forty mile an hour. It's it's pretty fascinating, like yeah, it captured me anyway. So, um, what I I listened to a previous podcast you did, and I'm going to pick up on a on a couple of things that you came up with that I thought that were really really interesting, sort of um, insider um, concepts that 
you run with. Uh, one of them, you said that um, if you want to really focus on being a long-term winning gambler, uh, you using the concept of closing line value as 98% of the work. Um, yeah. Could you tell me what closing line value is and why it's 98% of the work, if you don't mind? Yeah, it's just it's just my own personal opinion, I suppose. Like with a lot of with a, with liquid markets, especially if you're if you're taking sixteen to one about something and the the liquid closing line is ten to one, in the long term you're just going to win money. It's just yeah, the, the key the key at that once you've mastered that scale of betting sixteen to one shots that are going off ten to one the skill then becomes managing your bankroll and staking correctly um once once you've found those selections so the finding of the selections is basically the first piece of the pie um you can also lose every single penny you've got by staking incorrectly over staking on those selections you need to manage your bankroll correctly um and yeah and just take advantage of those thing, uh, those opportunities like um like i say 98% of them time because i think i think that like i don't have any i don't have any data on that but that's just a feeling i have um the other two percent of the time you you're talking about quite illiquid markets like special markets um different stuff where there's where there might not be well, there might just not be eyes on the market like the like me and friends might be discussing markets and i find some sub market to that that's being offered on some random bookmaker website that's not mapping towards checker and how many people actually have eyes on the market. So I think that can mm-hmm. have an inefficient closing line just because eyes just aren't on certain markets. So that's why I say closing line value isn't the be all and end all. Um, but I think it's just a good general rule, basically, that if you're beating the closing line and you're staking correctly, like the mathematics just takes over and you just have to win long term if, if, if that's what you're doing. And that, that's it at the end. So the practicalities of this, that every time you have a bet, you need to record, obviously, the odds that you bet at, and then you need to make an effort to go and record the closing line, um, the closing line odds, which work if they're liquid markets. Are we talking here basically the exchange price? Yeah, I think there's a good rule. Like There's, there's certain things that I would have seen where I think, uh, I think we can all find individual examples of an exchange closing line being being not accurate like uh-huh. i'd find them all the time but i think if you if you take a million exchange markets i think nine hundred eighty thousand of them i'm going to think they're quite efficient at closing line Whereas, yeah, yeah. so like do you know like i'm not saying the i'm not saying every single individual market is efficient i'm just saying that like as as a as a collective like it's it's quite a good barometer for 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 accuracy basically yeah, it's a good rule of thumb. Benchmark. Yeah, and you can benchmark yourself against that as well. And you don't have to when you record. Like I don't record. I'm I'm kind of past the stage of. I took sixteen to one about this, and the SP thirteen point four. I I don't need to record that. I'm just happy that the way I've evolved over time that I'm able to. That's just a given, basically. Now for me, whereas if you're starting off, I think you can record it. it can be a bit time consuming, and you can find ways how to scrape closing line data so you're not having to ind- manually individually record it and stuff like that but um yeah i think it's just a good barometer and if you're beating it you've you've, you've you're halfway there the second half is probably getting on and managing your bankroll and getting paid when you win as well 
helps. Yeah, that does help. <laughs> do, you, do you have uh, do you have a lot of difficulties there getting paid? Uh, not so much recently, to be honest with you. So I'm a little bit happier in that regard. But that's again, that's just an evolving an evolving puzzle, isn't it? Like um, I'm sure some of the stuff I'm doing now in two years, I might not get paid on something originally, and I'll have to tweak certain <laughs> things. So like, yeah, it's just a it's part of the what's game. Your, what, what's your pro? So you've had a bet with Bet Tom. Uh, you've you've stuck fifty quid on at ten to one that uh, Exeter are going to win, uh, and I've decided that I'm not going to pay you, or I'm going to pay you, no, I'm going to pay it two to one. What's your process now to get money out of me? Yeah, I just think um, I think in every individual case is different. Like they'll try and like if they're the only ones up with certain things, they can try and invoke. Oh, that price was wrong. Palpable error. I think mm-hmm. more often than not, they try and get you just, uh, as you probably know yourself, like beard accounts and... Now, with it- the palpable error, I think there are circumstances where I have sympathy for the bookmaker. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't have blanket punter sympathy. For example, if they were meant to be 10 to 1 and they priced it up at 100 to 1, I can see their point of view in that. Yeah. Definitely. That's, that's, that, that is a palpable error. But mm-hmm. I think what palpable era gets extended to by these unscrupulous bookmakers is they'll put sixteen to one up about something, and that'll be the first show. There'll be no other bookmaker up, and when mm-hmm. every other bookmaker prices up and goes eight to one or even less, they'll say the sixteen to one's a palpable error. It's not. It's just because you can't price and you went up first. That's not a palpable error. Yeah, but, and that sours the industry and those the. Like, every- the whole environment of the, the punter bookmaker relationship, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. But then I also think the kind of, I think the amount of people, the vast majority of people kind of doesn't know, won't realize that that kind of stuff goes on. So I think they're kind mm-hmm. of half getting away with it because they're, they're, they're annoying the people they probably want to annoy. Whereas if we had a more, if we had a regulator that actually did something, um, that'd help. Um, that's what it feels like from a lot of advantage playing perspective that they're 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 pushing us as far as we'll go, knowing they'll lose and we'll still get paid out simply to annoy us and kind of put us yeah. off trying it again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I think that is a is a big part of it. Like like when you talk about IBAS and things like that, when IBAS released mm-hmm. those when IBAS released their stats and IBAS are IBAS are pretty bad in the main anyway, but it's a free service, I suppose. But yeah. um when IBAS released their stats, they'll say, oh, there was 20,000 cases this year and we got payouts for 4,000 of them and 8,000 8, cases uh, the bookmaker gave in before it went to arbitration. Well, if a bookmaker gives in before arbitration, they're, they're taking the mick in the first place. Yeah, the exactly. And there there shouldn't have been the need for the year-long IBAS process. They should, yeah, they should be fined. They should, yeah. they should receive a fine for, for giving in because they don't have a case and they're just messing around. Are there uh, KPIs inside the industry, inside the bookmakers that are saying, you know, you know, we've done something wrong or we've been taken advantage of by sharp betters. If we can hold on to an amount of that money, then we've achieved a certain key performance indicator this year. Yeah, um, not, at, not at firms I've worked for, to be honest with you. I think, I think you get a lot of department to department at firms they can think they can treat things differently and have different opinions as well so i think you get a lot of issues there and there's no like uniform approach to certain things Mm. um but yeah yeah 
not 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 on purpose just denying money i don't think i think they do it when they think when they think they've left a bad each, they left in each way terms up incorrectly or they'll they'll be just trying mm. to it's it's bad trading basically that's why i kind of it's the odds compiler's fault it's not the customer's fault for taking yeah, the yeah. that you've offered so but the thing that i used to impress upon my my team was once you put a market on the website you have to then go onto the website and check how the market looks and how it displays and um, in, uh, uh, is there an incorrect blurb there? Is, do we need to add a blurb for dead heat? So, like, you, if you put something up, you should then check the website to see how it appears to the customer. Whereas I think a lot of people, the amount of markets there are, they just throw markets up and then they're kind of left. And if there's a mistake and you take it, the customer gets penalised and that, that's just wrong. Yeah, this, this I find... It's, it's, it seems from my perspective to be a little bit lazy. I mean, there's, these companies are big enough that they must have the resources in place to have people checking the front end of what customers can actually see. Um, uh, William Hill had Brooks Koepka, who had pulled out of the Players' Championship, priced up in various um, boosts and your odds, all the way up to the first tee. It's like the guy pulled out three days before. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Paddy Power... Um, if a horse withdraws, they'll still have a banner saying we're paying five places on this horse unless there's fewer than 16 runners. And there there has been fewer than 16 runners for about four hours, but the yeah, banner that, is still there. That's a particular bugbear with me as well, with Paddy Power, just when you're in the shops and stuff. It should be showing us a 13-runner race, a fifth of us five. And the last non-runner came out. I was got exactly what you said. I have the same. I have the same issue, and I've spotted that issue as well. And I, I'm pretty sure it's not malice. No one's doing anything to get an edge over the punter. But at the same time, you said, "What, what are they worth? Four hundred trillion pounds, or whatever." <laughs> there's got to there's got to be enough resource to have someone sat looking at the web page. Yeah, I think that I think there would have been. I think there would have been a, pr- a more of a pride thing taken from the trading point of view ten years ago. I think now. Mm-hmm. I, think tra- I think you need to. I think people need to understand as well trading if you want to progress trading is not where you want to be in these companies anymore trading is just a copy and paste exercise of putting up rubbish prices with little compilation trading is data entry at the end of the day these days um if you want to progress in these firms you need to be in commercial you need to be in marketing you need to be in some other department trading when i started trading used to rule the roost like there'd be a little bit of fear when someone from marketing came into the trading room there was a (laughs) <laughs> an edginess about the trading team um now it's just it's just trading get walked over in these firms these days so tr- if you if you want to progress in a gambling company get out of trading would be my advice and imagine in the in 15 20 years ago the traders were the senior people in the company but no oh, longer time, yeah. they, they would have got the senior roles as well and when when like like the which is kind of like it might be might be a little bit old school maybe i'm maybe i'm out of touch and but um like you want the you want the smart guys that can assess risk progressing and being important rather than some guy who's got three hundred thousand to spaff away on a marketing budget. <laughs> and it is an expert on whether the font should be yellow or green. Um, <laughs> that that yeah. was a bugbear of my engineering background where we had specialist engineers and marketing people and all the marketing people worried about was the color of the fonts it's like how are they on the same salary scale um so i i want to just go back a little bit to closing line value so that's that's a very interesting thing it's not something um it's not something 
uh, I, I focused on too much. And looking back, I think perhaps I could have sharpened my edges by putting a little bit more work into documenting closing lines. Mm. Um, but um, one of the where I started off, one of the aspects I was looking at was uh, football coupons, specifically in shops, um, put in um, put in steamers into. Uh, trebles into fourfolds, um, and I, I kind of knew that uh, that you know if if only one or two of the prices were cut and the others were held, I, I sort of knew in the back of my head I was beating the closing line value because of that because um, the majority of them hadn't been cut. Maybe a five or six were cut. I either had to sort of you know it's always difficult to reject a bet because you stand out in a shop if you're price sensitive. Um, yeah, but yeah. try not to have too many of those. Yeah, I have I had a friend who's is probably one of the guys I most respect in the industry. He's been a professional gambler for like fifteen years, and he used to fly over to London on Thursday nights, and he'd fly back on Sunday night. And the first betting shop he used to go in, he used to he used to mark the forty six home teams in the football league and have a pound accumulator on all forty six, and a massive big slip had come out the come out the till. Um, and he could see any price changes on on the teams, basically. And he, the, the the first shop he used to go in, they used to hate him because he'd do this massive coupon, big bill roller slips would come out, and he'd just make a note of every single price change, and he'd, he'd know what the prices were in the system as opposed to what they were on the coupon. Yeah, that's uh, an extremely uh, useful resource. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And he, he'd just sit in the corner of the shop with his big till roll of slip, and then he'd be like, "Right, that price has changed." No, no, no. And then he'd go to the next shop and do four hundred quid fivefold on the four he wanted, or the five he wanted, and then bounce to the next shop. And he just had his prices and how they'd been cut, basically by just doing a quid acker in the first shop. Mm-hmm. I thought that was quite smart. <laughs> quite a smart thing to do. We had a we had an example where there were two different teams using the same tracker to work out what um, the the top value football teams were in the coupon. One of them was in a shop and placed a one pound accumulator on the top ten to yeah. get the cuts and yeah. fed that back. And then another team placed on uh, the the same bet but without the cut prices. And the two teams didn't know each other, and it happened to be that they were in the same shop at the same time, which must have stood out to the head office. Those two people, there's what almost identical slips: one for a pound and one for three hundred pounds. Um, in in London, these shops, I tell you, I, I've never really been able to hit London shops very hard. I, I don't know anyone down there, but um, I'd imagine that that's that's where you want to be if you're placing sort of. Um, large stakes shops bets do you have any experience with that yeah like i've like last like london i haven't lived there i've never lived there in my life i've got got quite a few friends just from uni who just work in the city and stuff um so and i had a good friend that lived there for a number of years as well and he would have been he would have been running for me for for quite a few years whilst doing his job as well um and yeah, I think London. I think there's just shops are ten a penny, aren't they? They're everywhere. There's not as many Betfreds, but there's other shops everywhere. Um, I think like, like when we were getting down on certain things, we had you can get the postcodes of every shop on the Gambling Commission website. So we'd like mapped up where basically where all the shops are. I think there were like fifty four shops in in Hackney alone. <laughs> um, so like you can. Like you can spend four hours going around Hackney, to be honest with you, doing bets. And like, there's uh, 
yeah, it's just really handy just because there's such a high concentration of shops and the transport links are pretty good with the underground. And I've done it myself a few times when I've been over there for like festivals and stuff like that. Uh, the William Hill in Mayfair as well literally has a gold rim around the <laughs> sign outside. It. I don't even think I've ever been to Mayfair. So yeah, any any, any of them streets up the top of the Monopoly board are uh, just probably out of my league at the moment. So um, yeah. But, um, but I've, I've always thought if you want to get money down, you want some friends in the financial district in London, don't you? Yeah, definitely. There's not that many shops around there, but like I find that a lot of people, a lot of people I know tend to work around there. So like on a commute home and stuff like that, I'd be getting people to do bets for me and things like that. Chinatown is where I liked to go when I was uh, when I was in London. Chinatown's handy, like if. Uh, like, yeah, China Chinatown tends to be just a bit mental on the betting side of things and is a, is a good place to go. Yeah, they're used to large stakes there as well, aren't they? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, um, yeah. So uh, the concept of the, um, the, the the coupons betting, really, there's there's not much intelligence going on there. We're piggybacking on on, on Delta price changes. It, there's someone somewhere that knows that, there's an injury in the Rotherham team and that price needs to be pushed out and therefore the opposition yeah. has to come in. And that works deep, happening elsewhere. But looking at the market and the coupon in total, in, in grand total, we're sort of just attacking the teams that are steaming in. Uh, I heard on a po- the same podcast that you, you define that as steam chasing, which isn't a term I'd heard before, but completely and utterly accurately describes uh, what we've been doing on the coupons um, is that something you've ever uh, used as a strategy yourself it's just not something I do it like um, I said this my mates wind me up about this but I said it just feels a little bit like work and it feels like a like I, I don't want to be I, I definitely don't want to be derogatory about anyone anyone's different approaches and things like that but it's, it's kind of a little bit of unskilled labor for me like I kind of like a bit it's a bit I get the intellectual challenge of getting the bet on as well, but I I want to be the guy that finds out Rotherham have an injury rather than the guy that's reacting to the guy who knows Rotherham's got an in- injury and moving the price. I want to be I, I want to be an originator more than I want to be a follower. Um, so that is that is the way I've gone about trying to build like my network of people up, trying to find out information that's going to make me first to market rather than tailing the guy who was first to market um yeah because yeah. i think there will be more longevity in that long term and bigger profits in it long term and i think there's less opportunity in it because those situations don't come around much but when they come around i think you can make more money out of them and it's less of a grind and that's kind of that's kind of the way that i've i've gone about it yes i'm not it is definitely a grind that is oh, yeah. sure. Um, so, in terms of looking for to to the future, do you see online betting or shop betting um, taking up more of your attention? Uh, do you think it's going to change from the position that it is just in just now? Yeah, like the way I operate is I have shop guys, um, and the shops are still kind of half crucial to me. To be honest with you, like in in the UK and Ireland, especially. I have, a, I have a couple of guys that had managed, even managed guys and part of shop networks and that I can just, we have an app that I can just ping a bet into an app and it gets sent to the runners in the shops and stuff like that. So like um, that's quite handy for online. I outsource my stuff to commission agents. The bet placement side, I'm doing very little of myself. 
um, just because it's what I enjoy least. I, like sometimes I want to get out in the car and do two hours in the car and bounce around shops and get to get out of the house. Um, but in the main, to scale what I'm doing, I think I need to be more in the control center rather than being on the ground, um, especially if I want to scale stuff. Um, and like I'm kind of I'm kind of doing what the firms are doing, looking at new territories. Basically, I'm not I'm I'm doing more outside the UK and Ireland as a percentage every every year basically um, where are you looking at oh geez you'd hard like do a good bit in australia you now australia is nothing new but like mm. italy italy has the advantages of there's no palpable error there's actually no source of funds as well at the moment which is there's no palpable error in italy there's, there's no palpable error in italy now, now i won't be betting palpable errors anyway but like there's not yeah. you, you they basically don't have that out to apply a palpable error they don't allow it they the regulator doesn't allow it doesn't allow it it's the same in france actually so there's palpable error if you if, even if you genuinely if there's a handicap and it's australian rugby against bloody namibia or something um, and it's Australia a minus 42. If they put Australia in a plus 42, they actually have to honour the bets, which I, I half thought it's kind of gone too far that way, I think. I think there's a, I think that's that's probably unfair on the bookmaker, but mm-hmm. kind of yeah. the way it's gone in some of, these, some of these places. So, yeah, there's no pulp. Um, Italy's got no source of funds, so it's a lot easier to move money around. That's um, glorious, right? Yeah, no, there's less markets and there's less opportunity, and the shops are really good in Italy. It's, if you think about it, of course Italy's got no source of funds. If you think <laughs> yeah, about the culture yeah. over there, on a cast explosions on on how they offer it, but uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, the shops are really good in Italy. They're they're still shut, so Italy's kind of a little bit on the back burner at the moment. But if you if you've got guys that go around shops in Italy, which I've got a, I've got a guy that I have a connection over there with, who helps me out. Um, they're they're very good. Uh, have you ever looked at Greece at all? Haven't no 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 never been to Greece as well so no I I know nothing about Greece. I was over there having discussions with somebody and I was close to setting something up but n- never quite pulled the the trigger. One of the biggest problems I had was a translation problem from English to Greek because <laughs> it's like in Greek at, at least in French and Italian you can sort of half guess what they're saying if there's no English but yeah, yeah. In, in Greek you don't have a chance. But I mean every, I was surprised by the betting culture. Out there, I was in one of the suburbs in Athens, and um, it was yeah. uh, September evening, and everyone is sat outside watching European football and having bets on it. And I was thinking, God, there must be some of, angles out I here. Think, yeah, I think a lot of people in the UK and Ireland would be surprised about how many betting shops there are in Europe. Like, there's a mm. lot of countries that have a lot of betting shops. Um, yeah, it's just uh, it's 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 bigger than it's bigger than you think, um, and there are opportunities there that. Are, bigger than you'd imagine as well um but money laundering is making life harder for all of us and um uh, i'm not necessarily going to get into this gambling commission review i'm sort of holding on to some optimism that it isn't going to be as bad or even close uh, to as bad as the worst case scenario that has been mooted recently um uh, I think it's harder over in Ireland to to get anything um, down without um, source of wealth and everything like that, isn't it? Right? Yeah, there's rules over here that is uh, backward rules again, set by something somebody that doesn't know much. Um, that you can, if you have a if you have a bet over two grand two grand stake, yeah, you need to provide your ID to the shop. Um, mm. And if you if there's a payout over two grand, you have to provide your ID. So if you're having 
you're having 100 quid on a 25 to one shot. If it wins, you, you have to passport and utility bill and all this. So that kind of, it's just, there's ways around it as well. You just keep your slip small and go to more shops and have yeah. pay less than two grand. There's a pain. Yeah. Another thing, if I can get on, I usually, I usually keep the winning slips and then drive 50 kilometers out the way and go to mm. a shop and go and get a big check off them. And they're never going to see me again anyway. So yeah. Kinda, burn that shop. Yeah. Like, so there's, there's ways to get around it, but, um, Ireland's actually Ireland's better than the UK, probably just overall, just because I think money. It's not. I think money. There's more money here. I think just right. I think the average person is better off here than they are in the UK. I would say. Um. So like the, like when I'm in England or when when I'm back home, especially in Rochdale, like the the most common note you'd get out of the cash machines a twenty pound note. Like twenty pound mm. is like the standard note that comes out your cash machine. Whereas in Ireland, mm. the standard note that comes out of your cash machine is fifty euro. So there's there's a, there's more of a culture of denominations are slightly higher, just in general. Um, People got some cash left no, over after payday. Yeah, I think I think they just I just think the numbers are slightly bigger. I think if you're getting paid twenty grand a year in Manchester, you're getting paid forty in Dublin. So I think it's easier to get, and I think just that filters through to what the limits are as well, and how panicked they get about ringing a bell. Or I think. Um, I think it's just a lot. I think in England, the the head offices, your corals and your lab books, I think they come down on stuff that make any kind of autonomous decision that's not strictly on a later loose sheet. Whereas in Ireland, it's a little bit more, it's just a little bit more relaxed, just like the country is in general about everything. So it's um, it, it's good in that, from that perspective. I was in a William Hill in Worcester and I put um, 400 quid in, in 20s into the into the betting machine, which is oh, just takes for and you stand out so badly. It's like oh, churning the, the noise the machine makes, going, yeah, oh. yeah. Oh, I'd just come back from crazy. Vegas <laughs> and in one of the sports books in Vegas I saw a minimum bet of two hundred dollars, which with the exchange rate at that time was like yeah. It's, it's like the minimum bet at that sports book in Vegas was more than the maximum bet of almost all of my online accounts yeah. at that time. I have a good I have a good story about that for you anyway. Just in general, just um, those machines they were really handy in Ireland. Like they're less handy now, but they used to have quite high limits on those machines. And uh, like you say, the noise the machine makes. Like I tend to try and keep a balance on each machine, and then print the slip off, and then pray, use the to, God slip, I, yeah. pray to God I don't lose that bit of paper with the with the money amount on basically, and try and. I type the codes into Excel just in case I do and stuff like that. <laughs> but um story I had about that was I was in town in the centre of Dublin one day in a paddy power shop and there was a mistake on one of the machines. I t- I'll tell you what it was, right? This is this is mm-hmm. harking back. It was the it was the 2018 World Cup and Edison Cavani had scored three goals in the group stages for Uruguay. And I think it was the second round, France were playing Uruguay. And I know France won it after time here. I had a big bet on France. I was delighted France won it. France were, playing Euro- France were playing Uruguay. And I thought Uruguay were awful in the groups. They just looked slow, lethargic, poor. Um, yeah, over- yeah, they did. Overrated. And at, right at the end of the game, the third group game, Cavani got injured. And so he got taken off. And I was waiting on news whether he'd play in the team against France because I was going to bet France. And I was like, I was going on Twitter and I was getting South American journalists and I was like translating, trying to find out. And I basically found out that Cavani wasn't even in the squad um, about 10 minutes, 20 minutes before 
it broke like in Europe basically because I was just like intently following these journalists and trying to work out. And the reason I did it was the machines in the shops had they'd put up a price on them five to six either side. Edison Cavani's total goals in the tournament over or under three and a half. And I think like under three and a half was like 10 to 11 or something. And I thought like France are going to steamroll these in the second round. Cavani's not in the squad. Under three and a half, I was like, this is perfect. Like this is yeah. good money. And I was, I basically had a massive wad of 50 euro notes in my pocket and I was going around shops and I was trying to feed them into every single machine. And I was in a shop in center of Dublin, like feeding money into the machines like so quickly. And an old man came up to me, bless him. And he was like, it's going to ruin you this game. It's going to ruin you. <laughs> yeah. Just calm down. Don't do it. And uh, I was just like, oh, thanks a lot, mate. Cheers. Like, get out of the way. I'm trying to fucking bet this under Cavani goals. You're costing me money. Here. And uh, But like, he was looking out for me. But like, it just goes to show like, the, you, you stand out a mile when you're feeding into, when you're feeding cash into those machines. Yeah. Exactly. What's your strategy there? Do you just, were you just placing the singles or were you loading them up into yeah, random getting, doubles? Left yeah. Right? I was getting on like, this is really bad, but like there was one, there was a guy in a boil shop just before the game was kicking off. I, I managed to get six grand on in the machines. Right. Oh, well done. Yeah. And, um, there was a guy in the, and there's the boil sports shop at the bottom of Grafton street. And from there it takes, I was going like South. So that it, it takes maybe, four or five minutes to get to the next betting shop mm. and so it was basically the last one i was going to get to before kickoff and there was four machines say in the shop and i maxed out three of them and i was i was about to do the fourth one and some guy was on there like doing a pound accumulator yeah and like, yeah and i think this, this is like one of the worst things i've done but i basically paid him 50 quid to get off the machine <laughs> so i could put 300 quid on and hit the max bet on the thing and yeah you're uh, 250 quid off yeah, exactly it was a, it was a positive equity decision but um but yeah he was just like what are you doing um so he was delighted i was delighted but like just shows you like how how, how it works sometimes so that's that's very rare that something like that would appear you get payout no issue Oh yeah, paid and paid in full. Yeah, it was happy days. Yeah. Oh well, I think it was. If it was William Hill, twenty twenty, you might not have. You might have had difficulties then. Yeah, their machines. I've, I've had a. I've barely used William Hill's SSB team machines, but they are brutal, aren't they? Because I, th- I they're watching them like a hawk. I'm yeah. pretty convinced. Oh, they, and they turn them off just random. The, the whole screen will just turn off yeah. if um, if uh, whoever the eye in the sky uh, yeah, totally don't like pretty, what you're doing. Pure, pure scum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, right, well, listen, we're coming to the 45 minute mark. Uh, so uh, I'm going to wrap it up with uh, a quiz, if you don't mind, Anthony. I'm springing you up this on you. I know you've had zero time to. Oh prepare. my God, I'm panicking now. Go on. <laughs> um, you're not the first person to um, partake in this, but uh, I'm not going to tell you what the, the high score is until you have uh, had your go. All right. Oh, so. Um, there are seven European capital cities that begin with the letter B. You have 30 seconds to name as many as you can starting now. Berlin, Bern. Uh, Berlin, Bern, that's two. Yeah, uh, Belfast. Uh, Belfast, uh, We'll get, we'll come you're, back you're putting me off. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom, right? Is it? Oh, it's got a dog. The dog gets started on that. Jesus, you'll have me your head cut off over here. 
Yeah, you got 15 seconds to go. Uh, You're halfway uh, through. Belgrade, Budapest. Five seconds. <laughs> and that's your time up. That's four. That's awesome. I heard Belgrade, Budapest, Bucharest. Uh, Berlin, and Bern. Shit, Bucharest. Yeah, go on. Bucharest. That's the one. No one gets it because it sounds no. so similar. To yeah. <laughs> going through, trying to go through, I was scrolling through the Europa League teams in my head, but. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, you could have had, so that you want to know uh, as well, Brussels and Bucharest. Uh, no, Brussels and Bratislava were the other uh, two. Brussels. Does that mean you got five? Oh, no, because you got Bucharest. But, uh, yeah. Time was up. So I'm just uh, having a look at the leaderboard. Uh, Anthony, you are positioned number one yes, on the dude. leaderboard, um, which has two people on it currently. Serious. Um, Hello? <laughs> Sorry. Hi, thought- how are you doing? So my I, my, uh, my my laptop kicked in there with the the oh, Siri. Okay, I think. Okay. Right, go on. I'm, I'm number one. You're number one. Oh Jesus! <laughs> Jesus! Before I, I I thought that was pretty poor. Um, oh, I'll yeah, take yeah, that. Yeah, no, well, there's only two on the leaderboard. Although I'm recording one with the green square guy um, a little bit later today, so we're three on there that, that then. But you are the current leader. If you're still leading at the end of the season, we'll send out um, one of two on book voucher or something to you. I'm one of I'm one of two. That's you're one of two, but you've got a goal difference of three over second place. That sounds pretty bad. That's it. we'll just say I'm number one. We'll say I'm number one. <laughs> okay, listen, Anthony. Thank you very much for joining me for a chat today. It was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, nice one, man. Much appreciated, and uh, love the website and what you're doing. So, um, yeah, it'd be good. It'd be good to stay in touch. Anyway. Yeah, I appreciate those words. Thanks, right. Anthony. Cheers, mate. Did the Did the Did the earth move fire and